Thankful to open God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of John. The book of John. This morning, we find ourselves in the second half of John chapter 18. So last week, we looked at the betrayal and the denial of Jesus. And we looked at how we, in our sin, are prone to betraying and denying our Lord. But the glorious truth that we saw last week is that even in the midst of his loneliest moment, Jesus never betrays us, and he never denies us, and that is good news for us. But this week, we have Jesus before Pilate, and these are well-known events to you if you are a Christian or if you have grown up in the church. They are, they're prominent events. They're events that stir up some emotions within the life of the Christian, but they are events that confront us with truths, truths about ourselves and truths about Jesus. So as you put your finger on John chapter 18, allow me to ask you a question. Have you ever thought of about how life is filled with questions? I hope you realize what I just did there. Have you ever thought about how life is filled with questions? And as we progress on in our lives, those questions take on more importance. So in our younger years, they're very simple questions. What am I going to eat for lunch today? Mom and dad, do I have to wear clothes today? Or Jedediah will ask me, dad, are you stronger than the Hulk? These are simple questions, obvious answers, right? <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> but then as we get into high school and as we mature into the high school years, we have more questions. The importance increases. Questions about our identity, about who we are, who we want to become, what are our plans after graduation? But then in the adult years, we can say the importance even increases. We have questions of, am I supposed to be married? If so, who do I marry? Should I move across the country for this job? Should I move across the country to take care of aging parents? Even a little bit more important, Lord, how are we going to pay these bills? Lord, why are my kids rebelling? Lord, why does my spouse seem so distant? Now, the importance of certain questions will depend on many factors. Your stage of life, your maturity as a Christian, your family and work circumstances. But today, we're going to look at a text that is filled with questions. Nine questions, to be exact, found in 13 verses. Nine questions in this farce of a trial for Jesus that reveal they reveal them about who the nature of Jesus is, who he is, and what he has come to do. What was his mission while on earth? So this morning, though, for your outline, we have three questions that I think arise from the text. Three questions that pertain to the king and his kingdom. Three questions that each of us are confronted with as we read the passage. So would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18? I'm going to start reading in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. 
It's not legal, though, for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. The first question that we see in the text is this, will we accept his sacrifice? Will we accept his sacrifice? Now, the background of this trial needs to be hit on for a moment. From the other Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin, and he appeared before Herod. But here in John's Gospel, he is moving quickly to the point. He has some theological pictures that he wants to paint for us. So Jesus, in John's Gospel, is sent straight to Pontius Pilate, to the governor, to this man who was absolutely despised by the Jews. He was known for his brutality and his harsh rule. The historians Josephus and Philo tell us that sometimes he had reportedly executed Jews without even a trial. A few years before this trial, he had stolen money from the temple treasury in order to finance his aqueduct. Then when the Jews found out about it, they started a riot in the city out of their anger, and then uh, Pilate, in his retaliation, told the Roman soldiers to kill whoever was rioting. So at the very least, there is some bad blood here. But as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And to the Jewish leaders, Jesus and his message are the clear enemy. So Pilate's help is needed. The text tells us, though, as we read it closely, that it was early morning. Jesus had been shuffled from place to place during the night, and now they come to the governor, to Pilate, to the one man who can kill Jesus, the one man who can make him die. But notice the hypocrisy in the text. John tells us they didn't enter the headquarters themselves because then they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover, so Pilate had to come out to them. Never mind all the laws they just broke with this arrest, of having a trial without witnesses, of coming in the middle of the night to arrest him, of even mentioning in this text that they say they can't put anyone to death. Never mind those things. We have to keep this part of the law. We have to keep the Passover. We can't go into a Gentile's house because then we can't eat the Passover. We'll become defiled. It's funny how the same temptation for hypocrisy hits us today. We love to pick and choose the commands of God that we want to follow. We love to pick and choose the parts of our lives that we submit to Christ. We love Jesus as Savior, Jesus as our sacrifice, but Jesus as Lord? He's going to tell me what to do? That's a little harder for us. But beware that subtle temptation in your heart for hypocrisy. Beware of failing to love those in the body who are different than you. Beware of loving only those who are like you. Beware of coming to church and trying to present a certain view of yourself and of your family. Beware of hypocrisy. It is an infection that will spread amongst the body. And it is cured only through repentance and only through the steady reminder of the gospel. The news that Jesus died for us. The news that he is our sacrifice, because that's our question. Will we accept this sacrifice? Because when we do, it means we no longer have to hide who we are. We're all on the same playing field now, if you are in Christ. It is, as Pastor Jeff often says, we drag our sins now, kicking and screaming to the foot of the cross. 
those of us who are in Christ have nothing more to fear concerning our reputations or concerning what others might know about our past. We have been forgiven. And God has promised that we are being sanctified, that we are growing into the likeness of Christ. So we have to guard against the hypocrisy that these Jewish leaders were showing. Hypocrisy that causes us to see the speck in another eye, but fail to see the plank protruding from our own. But the question I asked of us is this, will we accept this sacrifice? So where do we see this in the section? I think there's two pictures that John paints for us. And the first is this, Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. John is purposeful in telling us this. He's purposeful in how he's painting this whole entire scene. It's the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, as I said. And we pointed out the hypocrisy of the Jews in not wanting to go inside of Pilate's headquarters, of not wanting to be defiled. But we have to see theologically what's happening. They want to be able to eat the Passover meal. That's the goal of theirs in not going in. But they don't understand that by having Jesus killed, they're slaying the new Passover lamb. They are slaying the new lamb. During the Exodus, the Israelites had to put the blood at the top of their doorpost so that the angel of the Lord would pass them over and not take their firstborn. The Jews have been celebrating this deliverance from Egypt for over 1,500 years. And now, at God's appointed time, the greatest Passover is going to happen. Jesus is going willingly as the sacrifice, the slaughtered lamb who will take away the sins of the world. God will pass over us now because of the blood of Jesus. He is our Passover sacrifice. But the second picture that John paints for us is this, Jesus is our suffering servant. He is our suffering servant. Notice the interaction, verse 31. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. In other words, he's done nothing wrong according to Roman law. He's even gonna say later on that he finds the man innocent. You take him, judge him according to your law. Notice the heart of the Jewish leaders. It's not legal though for us to put anyone to death. They want his death above all else. You see, whenever Rome overtook Jerusalem, they took away the power of capital punishment from the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders have to go to Pilate. It is reserved for the highest of office. They have to go to him so that Jesus will be killed. But verse 32, they said this, this is what John's telling us now, they said this so that Jesus's words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. That's a fascinating statement. In God's providence, Jesus Christ was going to be crucified under Roman rule. If he was killed a hundred years before this time, Jesus probably would have been stoned at the hands of the Jews. But John tells us that his means of death, this Roman crucifixion, the way in which he died was to fulfill what Jesus said, was to fulfill the scriptures. So what scriptures? What is he talking about? The main one is Deuteronomy 21. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Theologically, we have to see that as Jesus is crucified on the cross, on that tree, the very wrath of God is poured out to him. It is, as we talked about last week, he takes the cup. He alone can do it. But he's also our suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse four. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. 
But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. God, in his love for you, sent his son Jesus to be your sacrifice to be the suffering servant who was crushed for our sins and punished so that peace between us and God could take place. It is only through him. God passed over you because of Jesus. So will you accept that sacrifice? Don't count on anything you bring to the table. Don't count on any of your works or your deeds or your pursuit of living a good moral life. All of those are great but you have to count on the sacrifice of Christ. So would you accept it? He calls all of those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him, so would you come? He's calling to you. But secondly, and the second question that arises from the text is this, will we accept his rule? Will we accept his rule? Verse 33 on. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You're a king then. Pilate said, you say that I'm a king, Jesus replied, and I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate asked. What is truth? The question of what is truth assumes something. It assumes that there's an answer. It assumes that truth is, that truth is an objectifiable reality. It understands that there's an answer to that question. Truth can be found. It can be known and it can be realized. But in our day and age, in our postmodern age, truth is under attack. Truth, one writer remarks, is not in asserting anything, but just the inquiry. When you ask questions, you seek truth. But then if you're anything like me and you reason through that, you can't answer the questions. You can't assert anything. So the reasoning there is circular. How can you ever come to know the truth? Others will say that truth is just your experience of life. That is your truth. Wherever your heart leads, that is your truth. Even if it contradicts somebody else's truth, your truth is personal. But then the Bible would tell us that the heart is deceitful above all things. So how can we trust it to guide us into truth? So Pilate's ending question here brings about many questions for us. The truth, though, of the Christian faith is that we believe in the God who is, the God who has spoken, that he has revealed himself, and what he has revealed about both himself and us is truth. We, of all people, have the truth. We live out that truth. And here in this text, Jesus is going to give us truth about himself as king and his kingdom that he's establishing. Truth that confronts each of us in different ways. 
but it particularly brings about the question I've asked, will we submit to his rule? Will we accept his rule and what he says to be true? Pilate, though, in this story is confronted with a truth that he is not prepared for. It's the truth that Jesus is king, but his kingship is so different than anything Pilate or the Jews could have ever imagined. Pilate asked him, are you a king? Who's asking is really what Jesus responds. Are you genuinely curious? Do you really want to know? Are you actually seeking out truth? Or are you just repeating what they've said to you? What's the intention behind your question, Pilate? Well, Pilate actually wants to know if, if Jesus is a threat. Clearly, he's not the king of the Jews in, in Pilate's eyes because they're actually bringing this guy to be crucified, to be killed by him. So he's not actually a king, but is he leading a rebellion, an insurrection? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus tells him. If it was, my servants would fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. The truth that we have to come to understand through this interaction with Pilate and Jesus is that God's kingdom is pri primarily a spiritual one. It's a kingdom that advances through the gospel, uh, through prayer, through discipleship, through sacrificial love and obedience. It's not a physical kingdom to be fought for. And I realize that emotions are always so elevated during an election year. So allow me to say a few things about what God's kingdom entails for us today in our specific context. As Christians, we do not bully the gospel upon people in the name of Jesus. As Christians, we don't ostracize and criticize those who view things differently than us, even on social media. We hold truth and grace together, never divorcing the two. We call people the, to the truth because we have it. We teach them the truth. We show them how to live out the truth, but we do it in the most gracious and Christ-filled way possible. Jesus, though, is making it clear in this passage that his kingdom is not to be fought for. We don't use weapons in the name of Christianity. We're not to confuse our Christianity and our patriotism. We always keep them in their proper perspective. We don't lift up our patriotism over our Christianity because then that perspective is warped. This is what it means for us to live as citizens of a greater kingdom. But what is the temptation for all of us? What is the temptation that's going to hit us square in the face in about six months' time when election season is in the midst of it? How do you and I not live this truth out? Many of you would say, yeah, Pastor Ryan, Jesus is king. I agree with you. But then as this week, when you watch the news or you read an article, you might get completely spun out based on what's happening. Your whole demeanor changes based on a political or a cultural event. You're acknowledging Jesus to be king, but your actions and emotions are communicating something else entirely. And I say this as one who has been in those very shoes. Don't let your joy be tied to what's happening in our country or in this world. Don't let your joy be tied to the circumstances or the flavor of the day. Let your joy be grounded in Jesus Christ, in him alone. It's the truth that you are in him and that he has promised that one day all tears will be wiped away. All sickness and death will be gone. All wars will be finished. 
all wrong in the world will be made right. That is our hope. So we can thank God. We can thank God for the blessings that we have and that we enjoy of living here, of being able to gather as brothers and sisters without intense persecution, being able to gather to worship the one true God. We show honor and we give thanks to those who have sacrificed so much so that we can. And we also make informed choices as citizens and we vote in line with our fundamental beliefs. That's part of the blessing that we have of living in the country. But our allegiance first and foremost, is to Jesus Christ. He is our king. We are a part of his kingdom, first and foremost. Not to any country above all, but to him above all. When you study world history, you see the truth that countries come and go, no matter how powerful or influential they are. The mighty Babylonian empire lasted 300 years before it was overthrown. The Ottoman empire lasted 600 years The Roman Empire that we read about in this text lasted a thousand years, all the greatest of their day. All are no more. In a few years, the United States will officially be 250 years old. So if, in God's sovereignty, let me remind you that the scriptures tell us that he orders the rise and the fall of nations. If, in his sovereignty, in 50 years, the United States is no more, don't think it's happening. Just stick with me, okay? If in, the United, in 50 years, the United States is no more, if we're a part of a different nation, if some catastrophe has happened, we don't lose hope. We, of all people, have hope. And we tell them in the midst of that trial of our hope. We tell them of our King Jesus. And we call them to be a part of that kingdom. Our love and devotion to Jesus Christ does not wane because we are part of another kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom that is advancing, and a kingdom that we as his followers will all one day rule and reign from. That is our hope. But Jesus also makes it clear that he's come to testify to the truth. This is a kingdom of truth. 37, verse 37. You're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied, and I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It reminds us of a few chapters previous, John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. How are the citizens of Jesus' kingdom to be identified? How do we recognize one another? We are of the truth. We have the truth. We have believed the truth. We understand the gospel. We understand Jesus' claims to be true, and we have submitted our lives to his rule. He is our king. And we see this kingdom, we see God's rule most noticeably here in the local church. This is where the citizens of God's kingdom come together to praise, proclaim, and practice all that Jesus Christ commanded us. And then we go out into the world as ambassadors of this kingdom and we give them a message of love, a message of hope, the message of the gospel. That is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So the question comes, will we accept this rule? Will we submit our lives to it? Will we put Jesus' kingdom above all earthly kingdoms? He is our king. 
He has given us truth and he is truth. Jesus tells us that we will show ourselves to be under his rule by listening to his voice, by walking and living out this truth. So may we here at Christ Community do just that. But lastly, we have one more question in the text. Will we accept his love? Will we accept his love? Second half of verse 38. After he, had said the, after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom, though, that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. You may be asking yourself, where in the world is the love in this passage? Well, allow me to explain. All of John's gospel is coming to a point. It's coming to the cross. And these few verses right here set the scene for what is about to take place. Pilate comes out and he tells the Jewish leaders that he finds no grounds for charging the man. He is innocent. Justice would demand then that he goes free. But Pilate is a politician. He knows how to play the games of the people. So as a politician, he doesn't simply release Jesus. He's going to give them a festival time pardon, a Passover during the pardon. So he says, would you like your king back in a mocking way? Would you like Jesus back? Some small part of me thinks that maybe Pilate was thinking they would say yes. There's no way they take the criminal, right? No way they take the rebel. Pilate had just deemed Jesus as innocent. No way they take the revolutionary. Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas, they cry. Give us Barabbas. What's interesting in the text is that Barabbas' name actually means son of Abba, son of the father. So think of the imagery then that we have here. Here we have two men two sons of the father, so to speak, two men accused of crimes, but that is where the similarities end. These two sons of the father are completely different. One seeks to rule through rebellion and taking the lives of others. The other rules by sacrificing his own life. One wanted to overthrow the king and the other is the rightful king. One is guilty and deserving of death. The other is innocent and going to die. The real son of the father is going to die. They're going to free the wrong son. So the question we've asked is this, will we accept his love? Where is the love, you ask? The love is shown when we come to see ourselves as Barabbas. We are Barabbas. Put yourself in the sandals of this man for a moment. He was an insurrectionist, a rebel against the rule, a robber who would most likely attack caravans as they left Jerusalem and as they entered. He's a murderer, as Luke's gospel tells us. He's guilty, and he's been arrested, and he's on death row now. He's awaiting his impending death. We don't know how long he was in the cell, but we know it's far from nice. It's most likely dark, cold, wet, He's chained to the wall, barely any food, let alone any water. Prisoners have no rights in Rome. There's no hope for him. He's guilty. He's going to die. No chance of parole. He deserved his death, 
and I bet deep down he knew it. So each passing day he waits, probably thinking of the flogging that's coming, of the mocking, of the pain that he's going to feel as he's lifted up on the cross. It's any day now. And then the day comes. He hears the crowd outside, hears their chants and their words, crucify him, crucify him. As the thunder of it echoes down into his dungeon, he hears the footsteps of the guards. This is it. He's thinking, my time has come. The guards grab him roughly and they hoist him up and they walk him outside and then applause, cheers, shouts of triumph, Barabbas, Barabbas. The chains are taken off of his feet and wrists. He's being hugged and congratulated by the people. What is happening? He's thinking. And then he looks over and he sees a man. A man who is chained as he was. A man who is being dragged off to be flogged. A man who will eventually carry his cross up a hill. And a man who dies in his place. What would you feel if you were Barabbas. Confusion, I'm sure. Maybe some joy. Shock. Relief. This is a horrific and holy substitution. A horrific substitution because it's what the Jews demanded. They got what they wanted. Jesus is going to die. An innocent man is going to die and suffer and the guilty is going to go free. That is horrific to us. But it's also a holy substitution because this is exactly how the Father planned it. That the perfect lamb would take away the sins of his people, that the love of the Father might truly be shown to the world. We read from Isaiah 53 earlier. Let's look a few verses later. Verse 6, we all went astray like sheep, We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He went willingly. This is the holy substitution. The holy plan of the Father to redeem his wayward and lost people to redeem us. This is, as we looked at last week, how the Father shows his love for us. John 3, how did he show it to us? He sent his son in your place. He sent his son to be our sacrifice. The Jewish leaders put forth the wrong man. God put forth the right man. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, apart from being in Christ, we are sinners. Similarly to Barabbas, we sit in prison, a spiritual one. We are chained and helpless, the death row of all death rows. We've been tried and found guilty, and we await our punishment. Await until we are dragged out and appear before the righteous judgment of God that we deserve. But the beauty of the gospel the greatest of all the news that you can hear is that when you repent and place your faith in Christ, when you come out from that dungeon and the chains fall off and we are greeted with shouts of praise from heaven and then Jesus Christ goes off to the cross in your place. We are Barabbas. Jesus gives his life for us so that we can have eternal life with him. He gets what we deserve. We get what he deserved. 
We who were once lost and had no hope now have the greatest of hope. We've been saved and redeemed by the love of God. So can you, the question is asked, accept that love? Can you accept that love, that love that goes against all of our best judgment, all of our best intuition, that love that meets you where you are in your sin, that love that's willing to lay down its life for you, the love that calls you to acknowledge his sacrifice and to come be a part of his kingdom. Can you accept it? I pray that you can. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you for your word. I praise you for sending your son Jesus to come and to be our sacrifice, to stand in our place so that you would pass over us because of what he did. That is a truth that we cannot run from. So I pray that we would acknowledge it and accept it. I pray as well that we would accept your rule, that we would accept you as king, that we would understand what it means to live in light of that kingdom. But God, would we also accept your love, a love that is so hard at times to accept, a love that goes against everything within us. But we are Barabbas. Help us to see that. And help us to glory in what Jesus Christ did all the more for us. In your son's name we pray.